the main point that I left with last time is that in and of your singleness, so raise your hand if you are single, not married in here, all the single ladies, all the single, ooh, I love our, we've got a good single group. Somebody better put a ring on that quick. Listen, single ladies, you in and of yourself display the very nature and glory of God without a man. Yeah, yeah. And some of you will be called, you are called right now for a time, maybe a long time, I don't know, to be single and to glorify God in your singleness and to live out that calling so fully and so wholeheartedly right where you are without need of a man to complete you. So I want to be clear because what I was contending with last week is gender confusion that the Bible is saying that we are anatomically man and anatomically woman and that as men and women in our differences, we are one in nature, but we are different in our function with each other. And that there, that is why God says, I made a helper suitable for him. So therefore saying a woman and a woman is not fit for one another. A man and a man are not fit for one another. Now, I was contending with the argument from the LGBT community that is progressively moving into our church culture, in which we now see denominations advocating for same-sex marriage and, and same-sex leadership in the church. Uh, one of the debates, underlying arguments in that camp, is that because men and women, without one another, show the, the glory and the nature of God, then why does gender matter? Um, and, and furthermore, they will say, LGBTQ community will say, uh, Jesus himself was not married. And Jesus himself showed, obviously, the full glory and weight of, of the holy God. And so if Jesus himself was not married, how can we then, as Christians say, we've got the prime, uh, perfect, most holy, God-willed way that is a man and a woman married together. How can we say that this is right and, you're wrong, and they're wrong? And so I want to make sure that I'm clear that yes, we as single people, as men and women, show the dignity and the worth and the value of humanity in and of our own right. But marriage, marriage is unique and it is set apart because it shows the way God loves. It shows the way that he pursues and, and comes after us and, and why it shows the way and it shows the why. The why being why he started all of this to begin with. Time, universe, matter, energy, humans. Why did he decide to turn that dust into a man and take that rib out of that man and make a woman? Why did he create humanity? Can anybody tell me why? It's just one word. Does, does anyone know why God did all of this? Why we are all here? Why he started the whole thing? Yes, yes, all those are right. No one is wrong. <laughs> but it's, it's, the, it's the BBS answer that I, that's always the answer. Starts with a J. That's right, Denise, pastor's wife. Go. Jesus. That's right, baby. Jesus. He did it for Jesus. 
And so although this was the big mystery in the Old Testament, this was the mystery. All the Old Testament, every, every, that 400 years of silence, when Jesus comes on the scene, this mystery is now being revealed. And that mystery is related to what? Let me give you the exact passage. When I get to my notes. Paul in Ephesians 5 which is the big, heavy-hitting passage if you want to know anything about men, women, wives, husband, marriage. Paul's going to give it to you in chapter 5, a big dose of it, and it's going to ruffle every feather you've got. But, but at the end of Ephesians 5, after he has, in a sense, prescribed what men and women are to look like in order to show the way of God clearly and the way that he loves and why he did all of this in, in the first place. It's a very simple sentence, but Paul refers back to Genesis 2 that we just read last week. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here Paul's just repeating what God said in Genesis, but then he says this, and he just explodes the whole Old Testament and everything that God has been doing. This mystery is profound. <laughs> and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what you're seeing is Paul open the eyes of now these believing Christians of all different types of cultures and races and creeds. And now he's saying this whole mystery of the gospel the good news that God will himself become man, that, that in uh, nature, God and the Father and the Spirit are one, they're equal, but each one of them have a different what? They're one in nature, they're different in purpose and function, right? They have a different role. And so God is showing, I'm going to, my son is going to come as me, and submit himself, lower himself, come in absolute poverty as a baby in the most vulnerable position, in the most weakened state, an infant, a newborn, and he's going to give himself to you. And I am saying this mystery is why God did all of this, and it's what he's doing it, and it's how he's showing us he loves, and this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. And a marriage on earth, it is the closest portrayal of how God loves us through the gospel. So I feel like there is very little argument or, um, I mean, I really feel like if you want to line out every word of sexual immorality, every translation, uh, all the Greek and Hebrew text, and you want to put down, you know, oh, this was just, you know, historical language, or this was just different culturally, and so now we don't really believe that, and now this looks different. I don't know how you get around this part. I don't know how you get around this part. And so I, I, I'm giving that to you and I'm offering that to you, even though I know some of you, this is so personal and so close to home for you. But I, I'm hoping it gives you so much um, confidence and, and strength and, 
and not weaponry to use as ammunition or power, but, but influence. We are here to influence the world. We are here to point people to the truth that will set them free. And it is a truth that is going to ask people to deny every feeling they have. And in that denial will feel like, like death. Now, this is where... The, <laughs> Yeah. It's also an argument that just, it, it can't hold weight because if you're going to say, well, Jesus never got married, then you also have to say, well, Jesus also never had sex. So if you're going to use that argument, are you willing to also abstain from sex for the rest of your life? Because Jesus was completely and perfectly, I mean, never needed satisfaction in his sexual desires. He was totally satisfied in his father. And so you even see Jesus in his role as a single man um, totally deconstructing the culture of that day and the culture of our day by saying sex is not even the thing. Y'all are living a culture and a society built on pleasing yourself and gratifying yourself as often as you want, as quickly as you can, whenever you want. And Jesus lived the whole life saying, I'm going to show you a life that is totally satisfied and content in my Father. And you get this too. And so your life is not ultimately about gratifying your needs. And that is freedom. That's what he's showing us. And there, that is freedom. Wouldn't you like to live a life so whole and so healthy in mind and body and soul, so secure in yourself? Women, wouldn't you like to be so confident in your worth and value that if a man even hinted to wanted you to sexually please him, you are done. Wouldn't you love to be so free that even if you felt so deeply like you loved him and he so deeply felt like he loved you, if there was even a hint that he was leading you down this road that you back off and you have so much confidence in who Christ is because you don't need that to fulfill you, that is therefore freedom. That's the freedom. Okay, remember that in learning about what marriage and our manhood and womanhood, how we show the gospel and the good news that Jesus Christ has set us free, that there is, when we began to just touch on it last session, so now I'm going to go fully into it, there's this word that... As I was thinking about it and talking with some of my friends, I realized it's not so much a cultural hot button issue as it was in my day. And that really breaks my heart. Because submission for a woman, if you even said the S word when I was in college, that was a hot button issue. Terry, I think we were talking about this. Terry, Terry actually brought up this point. I want to give her credit in that, that it's really kind of normalized so much now where this isn't even a thing. Like women aren't even thinking about if they're not submitting or submitting or a man being an authority or hierarchy. I think, it, I think we've lost the, the, the weightiness of what this should be. So I kind of want to bring it back. I think we need to have this conversation. I think if you, if you are, raise your hand if you are married or have been married, look, majority of the room, of course. And 
And so, and the single women in here most likely will one day be married. So we need to know about this. We need to know what submission looks like. And remember last week I gave you a bigger picture of submission, that submission is not simply a woman submitting to her husband in marriage, that submission is us as citizens submitting to our government. Submission means that every single one of us in here submit to our governing body of elders in our church and our pastoral authority, um, that we submit to one another, that uh, children submit to their parents, you know, so I think I want us to give a really big, broad brushstroke that this applies to every single one of us in some way or another. And the biblical definition that I wanted to give you of submission is to yield to another in love. So that's on your notes there, to yield to another in love. All right, so let me just go straight into the hardest and heaviest hitting chapter for women, the one that I have wrestled and wrestled down for now 20 years of marriage. (laughs) And this is Paul back in Ephesians chapter five. Starting in verse 22, he says, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, "'for the husband is the head of the wife, "'even as Christ is the head of the church, "'his body and his and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, that is a gut punch to our nature. As women, I want to take you to, so now turn to Genesis 3, I want to take you to what we want to do instead. If we don't want to submit in that manner to our husbands, let's go look at what we do want to do. (laughs) That's exactly how I feel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Genesis chapter 3. Remember last week we were in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the beautiful um, garden. Remember, we're between two gardens. We're moving into the Eden state. So when the Lord uh, raptures us and returns, and he, he literally, very literally, is going to create heaven. Heaven is not something up in the clouds or anything like that. Heaven actually will come to earth. It will restore the earth that we live in now. We will work and we will live in a restored earth. And, and you know, really similar to that of Eden a very Eden-like state. So we're between two gardens. We've got the perfection, and the perfection is coming, and we're in this sinful fallen in between, awaiting the full redemption of the Lord for all to be saved and come to know Jesus in that time. But we see chapter 3. Let me just read this so that we can get a really full, broad context here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. All right, pause, because the serpent obviously knew what he was doing going to the woman. And the woman is a true woman in her uh, 
exaggeration and elaboration of the story a little bit. She just wants to make it really, really good there because the Lord never said don't touch the tree. They're, they can climb the tree. They can carve their names in the tree if they want to. He simply said don't eat the fruit, but the, the woman added a little flair. I've never been guilty of that, have you? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and, with her, and he ate. Now you see immediately, you, you see the authority of man, the, sin, the sinfulness of man in his passivity, because if you know this story well, you know that God gave the instruction not to eat the fruit when? Before Eve. Before Eve was even on the scene. So who had access to this knowledge? Adam, the man. And, and who knows if he taught her, if he told her, I don't know. But in this moment, we know he's there. And we know that as a leader, as a spiritual leader, he should have jumped in and said, whoa, hang on. We're not about to do this. That completely is opposed to the commandment of God. And he's good and he's trustworthy. No, and he should have led Eve in that moment away from her sin. But his sin was in his passivity, uh, in his apathy to the serpent. And I think Eve's sin, and I've talked about this, so I won't go too much into it, um, I haven't talked about it in this series, but I teach on this passage often because I think it's so pivotal to our understanding of who God is and who we are as women. I don't think women was setting out to sin. Like, I don't think any of us just wake up one day and decide we're going to wreck our life with sin. I think it's a slow progression of consideration, and I think that's what we see Eve doing. She's kind of making um, this whole thing work, and her excuse... Is, is not something really um, outright in and of itself seemingly disobedient. Her excuse is that so that she can help God. And I think this is really, really fascinating for us as women to kind of get to the heart of where most of our sinfulness begins. Not in this outright desire to disobey God and to not submit to our husbands or authority or our friends, but instead in our desire to help. If I could just know the answer here, if I could just know the difference between good and evil, then maybe I can get in there and I can help everybody color coordinate the seasons and get all the flowers together and those animals are going awry over there, so I should probably know something to help. If I could just do this, then... Has anyone ever said that? And then now, in your hindsight, can you look back at the beginning of that? I know that I can, and I've shared this with you. You know this part of my story is, you know, my deepest, most painful season of rebellion was infidelity in my marriage. And I can tell you, I didn't just wake up one day and decide I wanted to destroy my marriage. It was a slow, progressive, very systematic plan of the serpent to convince me and for me to convince myself by kind of looking at the apple, we don't know if it was an apple, but a piece of fruit, I would just kind of think about it and, you know, walk by it and maybe a few weeks passed and maybe a few years passed. 
Verse 7, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So immediately the very first response of this awareness of their own flesh, of their own ability to disobey God and choose themselves as God, the very first response is hide. Hide. So they hid themselves the Lord God calls to them, where are you? What a beautiful picture of how the Lord responds to us in all of our sin. Where are you? Where are you? Even as we're hiding out. And, you, and then secondly, you see Adam speak up on behalf of what he, where this core, where the hiding is behavioral. Right? And this is like as we're dealing with our own sin and the sin of others. Don't, that's a symptom. So we're going to see people hiding out or isolating or being very alone. But remember, underneath that, the core is what? Adam says it right here. I heard you in the sound of the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. I love that God answers with a question, because he obviously knows the answer already, but he's a wonderful counselor, and he knows that they have to know for themselves. He can't just tell them why they're afraid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man says, the woman, the woman you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. All right, blame, blame shifting, blame shifting. There's your other symptom. When someone's struggling with deep patterns of sinfulness, you're going to see isolation, hiddenness, um, pulling away from church and community and friendships. You're going to see a, a deep sense of fear displaying itself in a number of things, maybe depression or anxiety. And you're going to see blame. It's everybody else's fault but mine. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And he goes on, you can read there, uh, the curse of the serpent. And he says to the woman in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, I asked you to look back at that to see what we want to do instead because this is the very core of us as a woman our sin nature as far as wanting to be when it says I, you're going to want your husband when god says your desire shall be for your husband literally for the role that your husband is in now remember the context of love is that what god is doing now he could have just wiped him out he could have just wiped them out. He actually doesn't do that. He sends them out and he allows them to work the field and have babies and raise a family. He gives them so much grace, even in their sin. And in this moment, the hierarchy that he has now set in place is to protect us. Your husband will rule over you. This is actually, I'm going to give you an order since you want to be God so much. Both of you, I'm going to give you an order, and I'm going to tell you, you think men have it easier? Oh, no. Oh, no. They don't have it easier. 
but the woman's desire will be for that power, that dominance, please, it's, you know, hear me, affirm me, my way. You're wrong, I'm right, I want to rule. So that's going to be that opposing spirit. So I'm just asking us women, single women and married women, I am asking you to acknowledge the spheres of which you are um, given influence. Let me say this right. Obviously, as a married woman, that's in your marriage. You are in submission to your husband. And when you are, you know, you feel yourself needing to be the one in charge, take it all back, needing to make the decision, needing to make the call, I, I, I charge you, pull back and ask the Lord and the Spirit to help you submit. I'm going to talk about how we do that practically in just a moment. I'm also asking you, single woman, to see your role in a very special light. I don't think it's asking something off of Scripture to, to create atmospheres in which you are aiding to the design of God, if that makes sense. So in other words, sisters, when you can create opportunities for men, your brothers, to feel and gain a practice being a spiritual leader, holding roles of respect, um, I, I say do that. Does that make sense? Help support the, the brothers around you that, that are insecure maybe, that are weakened in certain conditions, that are um, questioning their own ability as a man, that you as their sister in a very inappropriate ways, that you encourage them, that you speak that leadership into them, that you don't be a woman who always needs to, a sister who always needs to be right in those spaces, but that you, you, let, you ask their opinion. You give them an opportunity to lead uh, and help us create this, this order that is bringing God's glory most purely into our culture and our world. I hope that makes sense. I'll think about how to say that better. Here is the only passage, and I'm so grateful. Denise actually helped me see that I'd made an error here in my notes. When I was copying the scripture to your, your notes, you don't have the full passage and I've got to give it the full passage. And she was like, you've got to give us the full one. You're right. Philippians chapter two, because there's only one scripture that takes the sting out of this for us. Because remember, based on Genesis three, submitting and yielding in love will not be our nature. It will not be the default position. We are going to have to work for this through obedience. But let me give you this passage that absolutely helps us in every way. Philippians chapter 2. Everybody got it? I'm going to start in verse 1. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement. All right, read this woman. Single and married, read this woman. If there is any encouragement in Christ, he's saying, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. If there's any comfort from love, let me comfort you. If there's any participation in the Spirit, let me help you participate. 
any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So basically he's saying, let me comfort you, let me speak this over you, let this word give you strength, and I'm asking you in joy to agree with me. Paul's saying, I'm asking you, woman, to agree with me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Whoa. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours, by the way, in Christ, who, though, now here's the kicker, you got to circle this, you got to remember this, is the only thing that gives us the help to submit. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, now, now, now. Okay, women, can we just agree that as we let that sink into us, can now that give us, the, like, if Jesus is doing this for me, if Jesus emptied himself, if he went to the cross for me, if he submitted himself like this to us, if he loved us, the church, this way, okay, now I have a force of yielding to others in love. This, this way that he submitted... Jesus submitted in both his attitude and his action, and that's kind of the way, the, the way of submission that you see Jesus throughout the context of Scripture display is that both in attitude and in action, a, a drive toward harmony, a drive toward oneness, unity, and, and I believe that he was joyfully obedient. I don't know that he was always happy about it because he grieved. And I'm about to get to a point in which I want to pull out the women who are grieving their role in, in a way that they rightly should. Because they do not have a man following through with the rest of chapter 5, starting in verse 25. I'm in Ephesians chapter 5. We're back to that passage. Starting in verse 25, this is the call of the husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church, that's us, wives, church, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Okay, do you see the beautiful analogy here? Do you see the metaphor of Christ giving himself and loving the church this much? We're the church. And now you see the husbands 
displaying this to the world, the watching world, by the way they love their women. And I made the point last week that I think is important to make again. If we're doing this right, husbands and wives, then we, we really have no need for male chauvinism and we have no need for feminism if we're doing this right. And I want to make a point too. When I'm saying feminism, I mean, I am, you're dealing with me. I'm a strong woman. I'm, I'm advocating for women's voices and leadership, of course. And I mean, women couldn't even vote until the 1920s. So I mean, this is, there's no question that culturally and th that women have been an, an, the oppressed gender in many ways and still are in so many ways. And if you don't believe me, go back to when I read you the statistics of human trafficking and sex slavery and domestic violence. Women being the weaker vessel have uh, been the victim of, of horrific male dominance. And so I, I absolutely believe if there is one advocate in the entire history of the world that loves women so much and advocates for them leading and being boss ladies and having a voice and having a role, there is one man who did that better than any other man that's ever lived, Jesus Christ. Jesus advocated in every corner for women. So please don't miss that. Don't miss the roles in which women were judges and leaders. Um, women would speak up pr with prophecy, with authority. God doesn't speak any less or less frequently to women than he does men. And so I, I really believe that we do need to advocate, and I think you can advocate through submission. I think that the way that we advocate for women's roles is through yielding to love. So therefore, I'm not going to promote or endorse or get on a platform and say, my rights, my rights, my rights. You see what I'm saying? Because in Jesus, I don't have any. I really don't. I, everything I have is undeserved and unearned grace. Everything, man or woman, black or white, slave or free, everything we have is unearned and undeserved grace. Therefore, I don't need to promote my rights. I need to promote the dignity of marriage and the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. And I need to promote and shout to the high heavens that he loves us so much. That he gives us value and worth and he has shown us a way to know that and live in freedom and thriving. And if we would just trust him, if we would just trust him, There'd be no need of male dominance or radical feminism. And I think if we were doing this right, that every woman, I may be way too bold in saying this, but I think if men were leading this way, that every woman would gladly submit. I think you would find 
so much joy. And this is coming from a woman who fought submission tooth and nail for the first 10 years of her marriage. And not just submitting to my husband, but submitting to the church elders. Are you kidding me? I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And I am telling you in the sincerest, most authentic part of my heart that God has changed me. God has taken a strong, uh, I'm not going to, you know, sit here and go all the things that feels weird to say, but we're gifted, we're talented, we can do, I can preach. Been preaching for 15 years. I can study the word. I can hear from the Lord. I can prophesy and pray. We can do, I can lead groups. You can too. And I gladly sit down and shut my mouth so that a man who is leading like this can lead instead of me. And I would have, I could, 10 years ago, I tell you, I would have never said that to you. And 10 years ago, my husband would probably say to you that he wasn't leading me like that. But this is what Jesus is able to do. When we submit and surrender to him, he's able to soften our hearts and to change our hearts. And as I submitted to Justin's leadership, guess what he did? He, he grew in such confidence. He grew in such humility. He grew in such kindness. He is so kind to me. And I know this is not the case in every church, but I am a part of a family where the elders and the pastor are so kind to me. Some of the first leaders who have ever treated me with such dignity and worth and kindness in my whole church history. So therefore, it is a joy for me to submit. I gladly and willingly submit. Let me tell you the two areas, and I'm going to just do this briefly, and I, I want to apologize. I hope you hear me. I, am, I have really um, not done my best in this series. I wanted to cover so much ground, and notorious of Casey Van Norman, she takes on way too much at the beginning, and then really struggles to follow through. So I had great intentions. And I really wanted to dive into to just every little topic that I could. And the Lord has um, been gracious to me, and I am grateful for your grace that we're just not going to cover all the content that I wanted to. But I do want to hit on two topics. These are two that I would love to just expound on, and I, I just can't. But um, there's two specific women that sit in my office frequently, and... Uh, it is a deep grief to submit to their husband. And the first one is in an abusive relationship. I want to give you uh, some form of clarity. It's probably not the best definition, but it is some point of clarity of what we mean by abuse, both in the professional counseling realm, and I think this would be also scripturally. 
you're looking for, and I've given you this in your notes, a pattern of behavior among spouses, and this is not just men against women, this is women against men, a pattern of behavior among spouses involving physical, psychological, and or emotional means to exert and obtain power and control over a spouse for the achievement of selfish ends. A husband who is an abuse, and I'm gonna say husband, and I want you to know that I also know that this is also women. But because we're a group of women, I'm gonna use the pronoun of a man in this role and how we as women are to respond. First of all, please know that personal context is key. No situation is the same. So no situation can be handled exactly the same every time. But in general, when you're talking about abuse, you are looking at a very consistent and unrepentant pattern. This isn't just a one-time thing. This has been reoccurring, and, 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 and you've got other people that affirm this. There's been evidence that other people are starting to see this. Your friends are starting to see this unrepentant heart. And it goes against the word of God for a spouse to be abusive in any way, uh, specifically with husbands in Colossians 3.19. Husbands are called to love your wives and not be harsh with them. Peter says in 3.7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, because they're heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we see our role there. We are heirs. We are also the weaker vessel, um, not intellectually by any means, but from a place of hierarch hierarchy standpoint, and then also physical. We're just not as strong as men in general. Um, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them and be understanding. And in abuse, you have neither of those going on. So you have a, a husband who is breaking the law of God's law of love. So I want to give you just, if you have been in this or you know someone is, let me give you some movement through this in a clear way, the best help that I can in, in this brief time. First and foremost, never endure abuse alone because a husband is under the authority of the church leadership. So women, if you've seen a consistent pattern in a man that is unrepentant and hardened and cold and has become harmful to you or your children or to someone else, you've got to remember that you've got help because the man answers to authority as well. And that is the church leadership. And there's a way we're going to enact Matthew 18. And this is good not just for uh, this extreme pattern of abuse or hurt, but this is just good on a you know, daily, how, how do we deal when somebody has really wronged us, really harmed us? You always go back to Matthew 18. It's exactly what you need to do every time. First and foremost, you go one-on-one. -on -one. You go to that person and you tell them how they have hurt you. You tell them, you know, my, this is what I'm feeling. So, you go, you go, so in this case, you go to your husband and you say, this is what I'm seeing in our marriage. It's not okay. It is not God's call for your life. And it is hurting me and it is hurting us. And it is hurting mainly the witness that we have in the world of, of the gospel of Christ. So if he doesn't listen to you, then you go and you take two, then you take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, this is key because 
if you're going to have evidence and if you're going to have two or three witnesses, then you've got to be in church community. So we can't deal with any of this if you're not showing up for church. If you're not showing up for Bible study, if you're not showing up for being involved in small group, we, we cannot help you if we don't know the patterns and we've got to be close enough to you to be able to help you create evidence. And then this is when we, if, if then, even then there's still unrepentance that this is when you would go to the church and the church eldership would intervene. And, um, you know, I, I honestly cannot tell you or promise you that in every church you're going to have the wisdom and the kindness and the compassion of leadership that would know even what to do. I can't promise that in every case, but that is in most cases. It, it is in my church. And, and so I want you to know the church is for you. And the church has done a horrible job telling you that, but it is for you. And, and we want to come alongside you. And the things that are, so many of you and me too have wounding from the church. And so that's like your fear. That's what causes and provokes all the anxiety. You don't want to go back in. You don't want to enter back in. But see, the thing is, that's there to heal you. The very thing that hurt you is the thing that will heal you. But you've got to be willing to be faithful and risk it and be vulnerable so that we can bear this burden with you. Of course, if you are in danger of physical harm, then both you and your spouse are under the, the authority of the civil law. So, God put law enforcement to protect us, and we submit to that. And if there is physical violence going on, well, I'll move to the second one to help me explain that. Matthew 5.39, Jesus says something that I think is misinterpreted. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And this has sometimes been misinterpreted to say that I should just let someone continue to hurt me. And that's not at all what Jesus is saying. Remember, Jesus speaks with a lot of metaphor and analogy. He is not saying that, that if somebody hits you on the right cheek, then you need to give them the other one to hit. This, he is showing us a way of love. He's not saying stay in the abuse. He's saying don't seek revenge. That's what this analogy men, means. To not turn the, the left cheek, to turn the left cheek means I'm not asking you to pay something for what you've done for me. I'm not seeking revenge. Does that make sense? So do not seek revenge. Pursue reconciliation at all cost, even if that means separation for a time. And I, I get that disclaimer because you're never ever going to hear me say, divorce and even in the worst case scenario and I get a lot of flack for that in my teaching and I get a lot of flack for that in my counseling office I'm not gonna do it um, I'm not gonna I'm gonna say fight tooth and nail it's what I'm gonna say I'm gonna fight like fight all the way that you can and if, if you've got to separate and get people involved and there's abuse and you've got to have people re-enter and try again 
I'm like, we're gonna go all the way that we can before divorce is even on the table. And we're gonna believe God a lot further than people will probably advise us to. But there's a way to do that that is loving. There's a way to do that that allows you uh, to continue to thrive in health and mental and emotional um, quality of life. And that is what God is offering you. And, and again, I'm just going back to that. We cannot do that without the church body. We cannot do that without the church body. I'm just saying pursue reconciliation at all cost to yourself. That is what Jesus wants for us, to reconcile. Now, what about if the spouse is not a believer? This is a hard one. And this is, um, I see this a lot in my office. 1 Corinthians, Paul talks to this particular case. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Um, again, what we see is this charge to, to really, really try to make it work even when you have one spouse who does not believe in Christ and one who does. And obviously that's going to cause incredible tension, incredible strain, incredible grief. I've got women that just weep and weep and weep in the office with me, and I weep with them because there is nothing easy about this call. And what Paul is saying is just like, what? What are you asking me to do? Let me keep reading. Let me make sure I can get this all the way home. Verse 15. I'm in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So we do see a movement toward, okay, peace. Like if someone walks away... If the unbelieving spouse walks away and issues divorce, I, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I do believe this is Paul saying, choose peace. Just, just choose peace. Like You're not enslaved or bound to this if the unbeliever is walking away from the marriage. But I do think this is a time where we leverage a leverage our femininity in the function of submission to believe and teach that God is faithful to save and redeem. And if the unbelieving spouse chooses to leave, it doesn't mean you are necessarily free to divorce, but you are free to choose peace. That's not really clear for so many of you, and I'm sorry. It's a very, very difficult topic, very nuanced, very personal in context. Why do you think I'm telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because it is so serious. 
God would not make this such a big deal. The Apostle Paul would not make this such a big deal. Peter would not make this such a big deal if he did not mean for it to be. I mean, he is literally using the picture of marriage and a man and a woman to show us how he loves us and what is good and how hard it will be because we live in sin. And people are broken and people are are fearful and hiding and ashamed. And honesty has been uh, tainted and compromised. And our culture is just saying, hey, don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. I mean, if, if he's not doing it for you, walk away. But you see, anything outside of a marriage... This is why sex outside of a marriage does not work. Because it's just a commodity. Anything outside of a committed covenant promise, the same way that God relates to us, the same way that men and women should relate in marriage. We're just commodities. We can walk away from each other if you stop meeting our needs. Whenever I'm done with you, whenever you no longer satisfy me in one way or the other, if I'm not in a committed covenant partnership that I've not said vows to you, when you become a jerk and you start emotionally and verbally abusing me, I'm out. But what if we completely, what if Jesus revolutionizes this whole thing? And he says, I am asking you to deny yourself because you are not a commodity. And you ought to value what I have done and you ought to value the way that I see you so much that you never put yourself in a position to be one. And that is why it's so important. The culture has created a culture of commodity where we are expendable and usable and manipulative, manipulated. The culture runs a cost-benefit analysis. And if we are not beneficial, if it's not gratifying our needs, if it's not getting us what we want, more power, more influence, more money, more happiness, then we can walk away. So I'm going to end by just asking you to see that God never walks away from you. Never. You are not a commodity to him. He is in a covenant with you. And it doesn't matter how many times we prostitute ourselves out to different idols and worship and we allow created things to become our God. How many times we distort the truth and the lie. How much we hide out. How much we fear. He never leaves you and he never forsakes you. He continues to pursue you and come after you and love you. 
and through humility and through submission, he showed that to us in himself. And, and may that motivate us to love that way, 